0: When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist, heterosexual BS. Now, I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist.
1: Love is the Love is the Love is the Love is the
0: Justin M. Higgins has seven years of communications and policy experience in politics. He led the legislative and media strategies addressing hurricane maria as an appointed official for the democratic governor of puerto rico ricardo rosello his leadership resulted in over 15 billion dollars in u.s government funding and increased awareness of the humanitarian disaster on the mainland in on mainland u.s prior to switching political parties justin was a legislative assistant to u.s congressman tim Holscamp, I hope I'm saying that right, and then a Senior Research Analyst at the Republican National Committee, managing a national media portfolio. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for being here. Tell us, what got you into politics? How did you begin this
2: quest? Oh, man, that's a great question. So I guess I was brought up with a few values, right? One was education always trying to learn more. My parents instilled that in me. Another was athletics. They put me on a soccer field first. I see Roy field down there. So that would be football to our friends overseas. And I just was really good. So naturally you tend to enjoy things that you're really good at. And then the third was public service was always very big in my family. Specifically, we would go and um, uh, go to the homeless shelters on Uh, the the Red Cross I think it was we would go every month and we would um, serve meals we'd bring food over and just try and be active in giving back and that kind of translated into a value of public service so going through school the education which was the first priority or value uh, coincided with the third which was giving back and that created an interest in history and government and politics and I saw one of the best ways with my skill set talents that I could give back and love my community was through getting involved in politics.
1: Wow.
0: Really interesting to hear that and amazing how your family instilled these values of service in you at a young age. also imagine being an athlete, you know, learning how to plan a team and support a group was integral. How did love play a role for you and how how have you learned or or discovered what love actually means? Oh man,
2: I mean, we have our parents who hopefully for um, some of us love us unconditionally. We've owned a pet maybe, like a dog, my dog, I'm looking at him as he's outside. He needs water. So my unconditional love for him will be to get him water pretty soon. I don't know how to answer that. I think that it's a feeling like love. You, you, it's really hard to define. And that's why the people when you're young, they call it puppy love. Right. Mm. It's It's a strong affection or a desire to be around somebody. But it's really deeper than that. It's not only something that makes you feel good. It's something that when that initial feeling of affection and just that cloud nine that you're living off of because it's a person or an idea or an ideal wears off you still are committed to it day in and day out when it's going well or when it's not going well and that's really what love is it's it's from from my perspective it's the unconditional support of something even if you're really frustrated with it
0: Okay, so the obvious to me next question is, besides your dog, what do you love?
2: <laughs> well, I have family members that I love. Uh, I, I loved my father who passed away as well. I have friends. Oh, yeah. I, could, I could name them off. Uh, I, I do love that. Um, and I also love America. I mean, I'm one of the most patriotic people that you will meet. I, I don't only love America, I love the idea of America. I love our institutions and I, I truly mean that and I love our community. So so um maybe we can get into what that means because there's a lot of jargon there, but that is that is seriously true.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to understand what you mean by loving America and loving our community. How do you, let's start with that. How do you define our community? What does that look like to you?
2: That's a really good question. So I would say it's maybe a local town that you're living in, your neighborhood. So I'd start with your neighborhood, your neighbors, your family, your friends in that area, and then expand that out into the town and the region that almost has a shared sense of community and a shared culture. So it can be as big as a state, it can be as big as a country, depending on how you're looking at it. But the way I try and perceive it as people who are living uh, alongside some fundamental values and that are striving to shape the world in those values. They may not always be striving and rowing the boat in the same direction, but ultimately what community is to me is a shared sense of culture where at the end of the day, uh, you, you can understand the values that people have and they're striving towards, even if you disagree with the way that they're trying to achieve those values
0: okay so there's this idea of like healthy disagreement and understanding on one side and then there's the idea of shared values which you brought up earlier do you have can you identify kind of the shared values that make your community your community speaking from your own experience
2: yes um i would and i'm gonna specifically focus on my view of america we love that so it's going to be a big community right and you can get into different regions and areas and have different maybe different values but uh ultimately the first one that i think is the most one of the most important is america as an idea and americans specifically is are founded on or it's ingrained in us that we can always be better Mm -hmm. So I I think that President Obama and Michelle Obama, uh, the first lady, really hit on this all the time. It's like the idea of America is that we can become a more perfect union. And then that's point one. Point two is hard work. We've never been afraid of working really hard. And I think all Americans have that instilled in them. But it is most upheld and really focused on. Uh, by the immigrants in our society. And and people say that America is a country of immigration and immigrants. It's the people that work and fight the hardest to get here that tend to value it and the first ideal that I mentioned the most. And therefore they're working to um, achieve a a more perfect or a better life, which in turn helps us as a country uh, achieve a, a more perfect union and number three i think that ultimately we do tend to have respect for human rights and i think that number three is love whether you are a democrat and you go and you travel uh to kansas and you go to travel into the uh, uh, dodge city which is western kansas if you go and you speak with these people on an individual level you leave the politics aside i'm speaking from personal experience because i for a Republican representing this area. um, It it doesn't matter really what your uh, stated political views are or your values. They're going to sit down and they're going to have a conversation with you. And I find that obviously that can't be said for everybody. This country has a lot of issues, but on the whole, people tend to be willing to listen to you on an individual, interpersonal uh, level. So to really just define that again, I would say it's striving to be better which I think all Americans believe in and have it's hard work, which is encapsulated by our, our blue collar workers, our mainstream Americans, but mostly and and most defined by the immigrants who are, who come into this country with a a drive and a dream and a vision. And, And then the last is just a love and understanding.
0: Wow. So it's really interesting, this striving to be better reminds me a little bit of a common definition I like to bring up in Love Extremist Conversations, which is informed by Bell Hooks, who um, kind of was informed by um, Scott Peck and Eric Fromm, which is the belief, love is the belief in the spiritual growth of oneself or another. And this kind of striving to be better is almost that belief in our betterment, right? In our growth, in our potential, and so I really appreciate that coming into this, this framing of, of kind of what we're working towards and maybe a more perfect union. Um, I am interested in kind of who decides what what that looks like and how how we engage and, and also recognize that, that connection of understanding the human rights um, and kind of the treatment of dignity um, is an integral piece here too. Um, and I think one thing that I noticed coming up a little bit um, in this kind of there's a subtext of always striving to become more perfect or striving to be better, is the ability to be self-critical, right? And the ability to kind of look back on our history and examine where we may have misstepped or where, where, where we may still be misstepping and um, perhaps having some challenges with making this union more perfect. And I'm curious how you relate to criticism of America Uh, especially by Americans. And I see a lot of kind of political folks, some being very critical and and, and verbal about that and others saying, no, we can't operate from this place of shaming ourselves or we need to be proud um, regardless of all the evil or or misdeeds we may have done in the past. So where do you fall on that spectrum?
2: Oh My God, that's a a tough, um, a really tough question. And I can start with saying that America has a lot of problems uh, every country does and that's not what aboutism, that's just a fact right i think that totally look at police brutality look at if you want to get into policy look at what we did by butchering our foreign policy in the middle east and going into iraq um and there are countless examples even before that uh with reagan and latin america and, and i could just list them off right So I think that it's uh, disingenuous, not only disingenuous, it might be even delusional. And it is certainly harmful to not offer an honest account of America, especially if you are a policymaker or you are somebody who is patriotic and loves America. So if you're not willing to criticize America, you are hurting it. However, on the flip side, I think that the point of criticism should not just be outright condemnation, there should ultimately be some larger goal that is trying to be accomplished. And specifically, if you shame people for being Americans and you continually use harsh rhetoric that basically makes people feel irredeemable and the country so broken that it's hopeless to achieve that better union and be better as a country and achieve progress then you're just as bad as the people who are unwilling to criticize the country because what you're doing and having worked in political messaging when i was a republican i am now a democrat what we were doing when you use that negative language it's it's kind of twofold right it fires up your base but it ultimately saps energy from any type of movement and Mm -hmm. and when you're doing that messaging in politics you do it to fire up your base, but also prevent other people from voting because it makes them disinterested. And it's the same thing um, here in, 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 in pointing out the faults. So I think there is a fine line. And I would like to say that I'm in the middle of that line where I think that criticism is very important. It needs to be honest. It needs to be genuine, but there it needs to be done in a way that doesn't completely disincentivize motivation to actually solve the issues so I'll, I'll as we keep going I'll, I'll try and think of some examples there um that uh like like uh, abol- abolish the police and defund the police mm. i think that ultimately that is <laughs> that is a very um in my opinion uh i'm gonna agree with congressman jim clyburn i'm gonna agree with president uh former president obama people much smarter than me that understand politics much better than this lower to mid-level staffer ever did or ever will likely, uh, that type of rhetoric, which is extreme and harsh, ultimately it will energize your opponents and it could begin to um, dampen the turnout uh, of of the people that that could support you. And it's ultimately self-defeating. So there needs to be some type of constructive criticism given.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that criticism is part of being a patriot, being able to be self critical and, and, and resolve, you know, look at what's not working and be honest about it. But to the point of shame or to the point of extremism, perhaps it can be um, limiting because it'll it'll cease action and it'll it'll silence people um that's what i'm hearing is that is that that is that is
2: a very uh better put than i did Ethan. good job
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely so what would you say you are an extremist for well where can you stand behind extremism if anything <laughs>
2: oh man i love i'm pretty extreme with watching baseball uh no um... <laughs> nice <laughs> there's uh...
0: america for you
2: <laughs> i i played in college i i would say <sighs> authoritarianism I'm I'm pretty extremely against that like for example I uh, run a club on um, politics it's called politics plus media 101 and we we, uh, interview a lot of people but we will not interview any of the hundred and forty seven members that voted to overturn the election Mm -hmm. and that is something that we are standing by right now obviously Um, If something happens where I need to reevaluate that because I try and not be too extreme on anything We will but I don't see I don't see any reevaluation happening. I I'm pretty extreme against the racist rhetoric used by uh, President Donald former President Donald Trump. I was um, uh, You know a peaceful protester during the George Floyd movement and I was actually arrested for violating curfew in Washington DC which I don't usually talk about in public but Uh, He basically gassed peaceful protesters to go take a picture um, with the Bible in Lafayette Square. And as a result, that really fucking pissed me off. Pardon my language. So I stayed out beyond the curfew and was peaceful, obviously. Uh, But I I did get a little extreme there and and was arrested for for violating a a law um, in that regard. So I would say racism. I'm extremely against racism and authoritarianism. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I, I'm sure there are other things, but I, I try and not be too too extreme, right?
0: Mm. Well, I I love that you shared that. Thank you, and um, thank you for literally your service, um, putting yourself out on the line and and being arrested for it. How how did that feel being in that collective movement at that time?
2: Well, it was eye opening. Um, well, the the movement felt good, right? Because if you If I put myself back in there, it was a a year ago, I was upset because of the injustice, the racism, the brutality that you just saw time and time again against black Americans. And if you look at the protesters and you were in in the movement, first off, they're mostly all young people. I'm I was, I think, 31 at the time. um, And I was like one of the older people there, so that was really energizing. Like all these young people have energy; they want to get involved in the, in in civics, so that was cool. The second thing is, it was people from all different backgrounds, which was super duper cool. Like, um, you had uh, people who were socialists, you had people who were Republicans, and it was just a cross section um, of a lot of young Americans. You had white people, black people, a bunch of different, all all types of Uh, genders, races, everything. Fantastic. Uh, But I think the most powerful thing was essentially when the police cornered us down an alleyway, and and you can go Google this, it was like Swan Street arrests in DC. Hmm. Uh, They became very aggressive. And as a white guy uh, from New Hampshire, I've never, I mean, I'm, I'm always naturally afraid of the police just because that's how I was brought up. And <laughs> maybe, uh, uh, it, it's just like, I see the police, I get pulled over my heart stretch facing. However, this was different. Like this was an existential fear because they're all dressed up with their body armor and their batons and they're, um, moving in a Spartan phalanx and they're getting closer and closer to you and they're banging them on their shields and they're yelling at you. And it, it feels like basically you're you're um, getting yelled at by a military force. Mm-hmm. That was the first time in my life where I was legitimately afraid for my life dealing with the police. And it was very sobering because it kind of And I don't mean to be ignorant or offensive, but that was the first time that I my perception was changed in such a way that. And I know it's not true. I can't understand anything, but it helped me understand kind of what this protest movement actually meant. Whereas before I just saw injustice and I'm like, Oh, well, this is terrible. Um, This kind of like changed my mind. And that was the most powerful aspect of it. It wasn't being out there. It was like actually having existential fear dealing with the police and then realizing how privileged I was because I never in my 31 years at that time ever experienced that regardless of the situation I was in with the police.
0: Got it. So you mentioned you're not part of the defund or abolish movement, but you did have this sounds like incredibly frightening experience being cornered by the DC police uh, during that uh, protest. What are you kind of for in relation to policing and, and this current um, you know ex- the extension of this movement that hasn't ended uh, certainly uh, as for protecting black lives and um, thinking about what police and safety and community safety actually looks like
2: yeah so I am not an expert here and I do not want to pretend like, like I am an expert but uh, I think first and foremost ending qualified immunity is very very important uh, I think that that is a step that would be would be, monumental to be taken and qualified immunity basically means that uh, police officers who uh, promote injustice or commit injustice rather are immune from civil penalties so I think that adding that layer of accountability might help make officers think twice I think that lowering the standards to uh, charge certain officers like they did in Colorado with their legislation is very very important and lastly I don't know how to go about this but ultimately police unions they protect bad police and not all police are bad that that, that, that needs to be said there are a few bad apples there are structures that ultimately um, promote bad apples whether that's not enough training for the police whether that's not enough high high enough of a bar for entry into the police force whether rules of engagement need to be changed but police unions create a culture where officers who do bad there's an incentive for the officers who are good to protect them and that veil needs to be pierced in some way because I believe that in addition to the structural changes like qualified immunity changing the accountability for police officers like they did in Colorado. There was a great law passed there. Republicans and Democrats got behind it. I think that ultimately the big thing is changing that culture and making it more transparent. So those are the three things off the top of my head I can give you.
0: Got it. Okay, so it sounds like many of those solutions, though, may not have stopped what, had ha- what occurred in your experience in D.C., right? Like these were some angry police officers who were clearly kind of Doing a formation that felt militaristic towards protesters who were peaceful. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I'm thinking about this in the context of that incredible experience you went through and being arrested for peacefully protesting, and just wondering, like, wh- wh- how how do we start to um, peel back at, especially now the the kind of onslaught of anti-protest or you know anti. Um, yeah, like speaking out, I guess, that's that's starting to show up in politics today. Do you have thoughts on that, and have, have you been kind of looking into that issue?
2: Well, I, I, I do, right? I think that ultimately, though, police reform is, at, at the most important level, needs to be done structurally to deal with the brutality that mm-hmm. has been wrought against a certain segment of our country, right? It's mostly black Americans and even more so black men so i think that to answer your second question though elect better leaders whether they're republicans or democrats and why do i say elect better leaders oh that justin that's a cop-out that's what everybody says no if you think about it right um elect better leaders and improve the political rhetoric because who determines how protesters are handled with uh is the leader of the city so in this case it was the mayor of dc who's a democrat Mm-hmm. who I am strongly, uh, I don't think she runs the city well, and I have no problem saying that as a Democrat. Um, or it's the governor of, of a state who brings in state police to deal with an issue. And they ultimately determine curfews, and they determine the freedom that peaceful protesters have when engaging in their civic responsibility. And I would say peacefully protesting, if you're passionate about an issue, is a civic duty. So to, to, to kind of answer your question about um, protesters and, and adding that freedom, I would say two things. One, elect better leaders and two, work with the tools that we have in society or work with technology to develop new tools or maybe create some regulations to increase and improve the level of discourse that we have so that things aren't as fraught and people don't feel as attacked and more civil dialogue can happen so that when these movements do spark up, there's less of a tone of vitriol and more of a tone of community. But that, those are just uh, off the top of my head, Ethan. So awesome. take them with a the grain.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And we're, we'll come back to that. I want to get deeper into that. But I'd love to just go right to the question of this conversation, which is what does love in politics look like to you? Like, how does that show up? And, and you kind of hinted at it a little bit just now, but love to hear more.
2: I can give you one example and we're gonna have to set the stage so this is the 2008 presidential campaign it is really 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 acrimonious and fraught and people are at each other's throats it's John McCain staunch Republican war hero viewed by many as a war hero versus President Obama first black president uh, to run a, a, as, a, as a large party nominee. And they are down the stretch. They are coming down this race neck and neck. The polls show John McCain up, the polls show the next day President, Ob- uh, president Obama is up in the race. And as they're going through this um, very heated uh, uh, general election, there is rhetoric from both sides, but specifically the Republican side on the base of the Republican Party that is painting President Obama as not born in America. They were painting him as like a Kenyan citizen Mm. uh, because of his birth certificate. And there's a whole issue with that, but also they're painting him as a Muslim and, 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 and in doing so painting being a Muslim as a bad thing, which we all know all of those things for many reasons are ridiculous. However, in a presidential race, right? And if you're running for president you have likely dreamed of that from being a little child. And now you're (laughs) a percentage point away from grasping it. You think if you work a little harder, if you, if you spend a few more hours doing it, you can achieve your lifelong dream. And to do that, you have to stoke up your base. So it would have been in John McCain's best interest to play up those fan, those flames to paint president obama as lesser than Mm -hmm. to imply all of these nasty things that were being thrown around and to really be xenophobic and prejudiced and, and imply that being muslim is a bad thing so he's at a town hall that's televised by cnn and again folks this is his dream this is what he has lived for a significant portion of his life and a woman gets up there and and gets the microphone and basically calls President Obama uh, anti American Muslim who doesn't have her best interest at heart. And at that moment is what you can see what political love is, right? And very few people have the integrity to do what John McCain did next. Instead of letting her go on and on and on and spew hatred, not only at this town hall, but on a televised network to millions of voters, he immediately stepped in, grabbed the microphone and said, no, man, no, man. I know President Obama. We've served in the Senate together. He's an American and he's a good American. We may disagree, but we ultimately have what is best for America in our hearts. And he did the hard thing there. But I think that that is political love because he definitely was not working in his best interest to become president, but he was working in the best interest of the country.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's a very high level and beautiful story. And uh, it's so cool to hear you share it. Uh, You're a great storyteller, Justin. Um, Just to bring back the room, I'm talking to Justin Higgins about uh, politics and love. And Justin has an amazing club, Media and Politics 101. I encourage you to tap on his profile and subscribe. Um, we're doing it in the Love Extremist Club where you are. It's recorded. And at the end, we'll probably have some time for Q&A. But for now, it's just the two of us. So hold your questions and we'll, we'll make space for folks to come up and ask questions at the end. Justin, you spoke about love in a very high level context amongst two presidential candidates. And I think there's also this love that you also mentioned kind of earlier, which relates to community and our neighbors and this American vision of maybe patriotism in the form of criticism, but also understanding and building understanding. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how do you bring that love in politics to a neighbor by neighbor level, to an individual level, to your lived experience as as a person who's from New Hampshire, which I love, I have... Grew up going to New Hampshire every weekend, so shout outs.
2: <laughs> um, well, I mean, it can be as small as, let's say, I'll use an example that just happened. My neighbors uh, were fortunate enough. They're vaccinated, and they decided to go to, I think it was Aruba, and they asked me to grab their mail from them. And, you know, that's nothing but maybe 30 seconds out of my way each day, just being thoughtful to remember to grab it, bring it inside. Uh, that can be a version of love. We talked about um, the George Floyd uh, saga and really uh, infamous murder of George Floyd and then the resulting beautiful protests and movement uh, that kind of spawned out of it. And despite not really being impacted um, at uh, the individual level by the police because of the structural issues that we mentioned, I think that going out and protesting on behalf of people that are impacted by a certain issue in your community can be another form of love. Um, it's really just, if I were to really boil it down, it's going out of your way to do something for others that you think will ultimately help them out while it offers, you no immediate benefit. It's doing something for no other reason than trying to help out either a community member or, a bunch of community members, and understanding that that's the right thing to do because you ultimately care about them and you just want them to be a little bit happier.
0: Wow. That's that's a powerful framing and I really appreciate that. And I just wanna reflect that back to everybody. Like we have these opportunities to bring love into our spheres. Uh, I don't want to use sphere of influence, but generally, like our neighborhoods, our communities every day, right? Whether that's, you know, smiling when now that we may have the chance to take our masks off in public or greeting a neighbor or, yeah, offering to grab their mail or, you know, walking the dog and and saying hi to the other dogs on the street. There's so much that we can be doing every day just to elevate the experience of citizenship. (laughs) And uh, I love how you frame that who do you think is doing it well politically like who are the the leaders that you look to and you're like oh that person today right now is really bringing powerful love into politics
2: (laughs) um I'm kind of stumped here. I, I will give an answer. because you hate to see it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm honest, right? Uh, yeah. And that yeah. is a good thing. And, and it's also a bad thing. I'm going to say this and people may not like it. But I think ultimately Joe Biden is doing a good job of it. Mm. I think that there, I think Pete Buttigieg is another person who does a really good job of it. And I'll explain why in a second. But. I think that one of the main problems that is facing many elected leaders in Congress, in the House of Representatives, and specifically in the Senate, is they get caught up in the day-to-day of political messaging. And the day-to-day is the three-minute news hits on maybe MSNBC or Fox News, and they go viral. That's their goal of their communication staff. So that's what they get prepped for. That's what they're thinking. And to go viral, you've got to be nasty um you're
0: a master kn- at this you used to do this for a living
2: <laughs> well, no, nobody's perfect yeah sure uh, <laughs> no i am I'm, I'm ashamed of some of the work that i did and that's why i started my club to kind of atone for it right to try and use the skills that i developed to um kind of make a little bit of a positive difference but um joe biden because he is just listening to what he's when he does speak he doesn't speak enough but he gets out there and he's not using that vitriolic language i'm not talking about his policies and and honestly same with pete Buttigieg. and pete Buttigieg would go on fox news and he wouldn't go and deride republicans he would talk to them just as they are smart patriotic americans who have a different point of view and he wasn't trying to shove his point of view down their throat and make them feel stupid but he would talk to them in an intellectual manner and deconstruct the issues and stay away from the virtue signaling and the loaded words and just have like a conversation like he was at a bar or at a, at a poolside lunch with, with other Americans. And the same with Joe Biden. And if you listen to his speeches, his speech writer is very good. He talks about compassion and he talks about love a lot and he talks about unity and he talks about coming together. And it really doesn't matter if you um, like his policies, leave those out. Um, but the way that his rhetoric is truly centered around bringing people together, go look at some polling, go go Google um, uh, unity uh, under, under President Biden and, and President Trump. It's not because of the policies, folks. Most of the stuff Joe Biden passed except for uh, the direct payments to people and loans to businesses uh, won't be implemented for years and years. And the full effect of it won't be felt for years and years. Hmm. The, the reason why people feel more unified is because Joe Biden is setting the tone at the top. And I think that that is very, very important. And to really, really put a fine point on everything that I just said about Biden and Buttigieg, it is speaking to all Americans through shared values, number one. Number two is it is specifically taking care to speak to your opponents who don't necessarily agree with your um political ideals in a way that you do so with respect so that you can try and ultimately highlight point one which is that common ground and and then number three it truly is using messaging and tones of voice and uh the, the specific words and aspects of the political messaging that foster unity and center on coming together as opposed to fighting some external evil or demonizing some group. It it really focuses on rising up and holding America uh, up to its highest ideal.
0: Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I have noticed lots of um, examples of our president not getting in the muck of, uh, yeah, kind of a lot of political commentary, um, but kind of rising above that. I'd love to expand a little bit. We we here in the love extremist community like to look at love in three frames. We look at self-love, we look at interpersonal love, which is a lot of what we've been talking about as it relates to our experiences. But then there's also collective or planetary love. And I would group policy and institutional practice in with that. And I'm curious what policies or institutional practices you think are examples of loving politic. if any. And uh, yeah, be
2: curious to just kind of hear from you what what you're thinking on that. Oh, man. So from the citizen, that's a really good question. So from the citizen level, I'm going to start with voting. I think that voting can be difficult for a lot of people. A lot of people don't get time off. A lot of people have to go register. You have to make a conscious effort. You then have to uh, research the candidates. Um, you, you You really have to put in civic duty. So First would be voting. Uh, in addition to voting, I think that uh, a second form of policy love would be ooh. Um, I would say I would say research and development, and really investing in America, not only. Um, In the immediate term, but also in the long term. So I'm thinking specifically, there's this Endless Frontiers Act where they're going to pump 100 billion dollars in into the country potentially if it passes to advance um, AI, machine learning, advanced research, and I think that being willing to spend now to put a down payment on the country's future, and specifically that will create. Well-paying jobs. It will improve our quality of life through new technology. I, I think that that's another example. And then, and then, lastly, I think that um, environmental policies and good environmental policies that are done in a smart way, that take into account current economic standards, the potential for job loss if you uh, do things too quickly, the potential for increasing the price of energy, which would really hurt our lowest income individuals however with the ultimate goal of reducing all those costs and also protecting our environment would be a, a third form of love and then you can get into police reform uh, immigration liberalizing immigration there are so many things you can get into but just to focus on the first three that popped in those would be them
0: how do you feel about the kind of care first agenda that's really looking at social services like health care mental health Um, social services, education, job training, um, you know, decarceration, supporting people who, you know, maybe have been through the system or keeping people out of the system. Um, Where are you at in in kind of government spending and kind of maybe uh, some could say centralized government policy rooted in care?
2: Yeah, so healthcare is a right. And I think that anybody who doesn't think healthcare is a right is sorely misinformed and they're not looking at the other developed nations around the world or they're being mendacious so it's one of the two in my books either they're um, ignorant or they're lying mendacious
0: is is lying just to be clear
2: mendacious is lying with ill intent got it um and so i'll just be nicer and i'll say lying um, so that's full stop. Health is a right. How we get there is another question. And, uh, but yes, care first is very important. You said the next would be uh, incarceration rates. I think that you can't talk about police reform, which is necessary. It is very, very, very necessary. It's too fucking late, if you're asking me. It, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be done. You can't talk about that without criminal justice reform. There needs to be a whole host of things done. Um, it, the drug laws need to be reformed and, um, you know, uh, I, I need to get into the bills, but basically, um, there are a segment of the population that is way over incarcerated and that needs to stop. And, and I think that from, um, the drug situation specifically, it hit my family hard. My father, um, ultimately was, uh, uh, addicted to opiates, right? Opioids, because he was prescribed OxyContin from a doctor who said it was non-habit forming because these pharmaceutical companies uh, lied to the doctor, and therefore the doctor provided it to a guy who was in AA, um, and that that mm-hmm. drastically changed my life. But I'm not talking about. I, I think sure, punish those companies. That, that's fine, but that that's not my point. My point is when people do stuff that is drug related. So, for example. Um, if, if, they, uh, if, if they get caught with drugs on them. I think that the first step should be um, care. I, I think that it should be a rehab or some type of outpatient facility. It shouldn't be to throw them into prison where they're gonna learn from other people who have had difficult lives, who have done difficult things, who have made mistakes. And our prison system is, is really inhumane in a lot of ways. Uh, especially when you compare it to Germany or other European countries. So that ultimately just puts people in an environment that is a negative environment. It's a harsh environment. And what do you ex- how do you expect somebody to rehabilitate themselves in an environment that is objectively awful? So to answer your question, three points again, I would say uh, one, yes, healthcare is a right and, and that needs to be fundamental. Two, I, I think that police reform is necessary, but when you talk about police reform, you need to really um, fix the way that we uh, imprison people. And then kind of to be would be uh, the way that we deal with drug crimes comes to top of mind because I'm not super duper in depth on these issues. But um, when you're dealing with drug crimes, you need to do what you said. Care first, rehabilitate, be kind, show love, compassion and not just throw people into a system which is designed to hurt people.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um- just as, as a side note, as someone who is very much um, part, uh, uh, in alignment with and standing behind the abolitionist movement, um, there is a, a clear interest in defunding police departments, so as to fund job training, education, mental health services, social services like what we just discussed, um, to keep people out of getting into criminal activity or, or drugs or other things. So I think it's important to recognize there's a lot of um, interesting kind of balances that can be tipped um, to change the flow. So we're not just addressing the issue and the wound, but we're actually keeping the wound from occurring um, by supporting people with education and jobs and things like that. So I wanted to just plug that as um, part of a definitely a love extremist ethic and value that I'm really excited to um, kind of be educated on and be learning from my peers around. I do want to open this up. Um, we're going to have a couple of people come on stage, not a ton, but a few. This is not a promotional space. It is recorded. So if you're coming up, you're agreeing to be on record and probably published in the Love Extremist radio podcast. Uh, but we've had a couple people waiting for a little while. So I will bring them up now and invite you to ask a question uh, in relation to this conversation. What love looks like in politics? So... Um, Let's start, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I guess we have Alex here and then trying to see if Merlon still wants to come up. Alex, welcome to the stage. Welcome to this conversation. What's coming up for you?
3: Mm, I really love how you're framing this and, and got a lot of gratitude for uh, how you both of you are speaking and hey Justin, hey buddy, how you doing? Um. So I I guess, how is it that you've seen um, from a love perspective president biden's i see his jesuit background especially uh you know his catholic faith as being a, a great way of how he's looking at love especially from a from that from the four greek concepts of you know eros Filio, agape and and storage especially the the last right the 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 duty and, and the sense of duty he has towards his fellow uh citizen so just Wondering what your thoughts are in terms of in terms of that. I'm Alex. That,
2: <laughs> Alex, that's a, it's good to see you, my friend. And and that's a really good question. I think that Joe Biden is a very religious man, and you know he um, contrary to some of our previous presidents, he goes he actually goes to church <laughs> on Sundays, and um, uh, I think that it is foundational to the way that, that he views the world. And I think that, like you said, I couldn't put it any better, but I'd like to add in one quick thing here as well. I think that Joe Biden, um, not only has he been through the ringer, everybody knows the loss that he's experienced and for him to still be kind and a loving man is is crazy. It, it's, it's almost unfathomable. Um, but also if you've been around him or seen him interact or spoken to even interns in his office, um, you'll see that he treats everybody with love republicans democrats he treats people not because of their status not because of their views but just because he's an extroverted human being that is uh some would say funny some would say his jokes suck but he's a jovial dude who just likes to joke around sometimes he 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 may um you know cross, cross the line in some ways but um he I I just think he like I don't know how to describe it dude you know how people that just like to be around other people because they like people that that's Joe Biden
0: sounds like a solid politician um but love to hear it and I'm glad you have these relationships with folks that are working alongside him that's that's cool to hear um Merland welcome I hope I'm pronouncing your name right welcome to the stage how are you
4: I'm well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I I had a question for Justin. That just quickly,
0: there. you're a little blurry. Are you able to oh. cl- get a little clearer to closer to your mic, okay, maybe?
4: You. i move. okay.
0: That's great. Yeah, it sounded better you just when you that said that. I think
4: so. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just had a question for Justin because I think um, just coming from an art background and thinking about my experiences of criticism and when we were talking about um that earlier, I was. Curious to see, um, there were some reactions I were having, but I'm just going to ask questions. I wanted to know if Justin felt, um, or Justin, I don't know if you felt, like um, some of the laws that the country was founded on would be considered extremist. Um, and just to be specific, like I know these are old laws, but um, sometimes the culture of those laws. Kind of still linger. So, for example, being priests of a human or um, other things that are in, were in the Constitution um, before now. I'm wondering if you would consider those laws extremist.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that they're horrible. And I don't know how, I mean, what was it? I, I think it was only landowning white men could vote for starters. And then the three-fifths compromise and slavery and um, uh, there are so many right uh, i i if i tried to list them all off i'd have to go look at a paper and and read them all off and we'd be here for a while but yes i, I do think they're very extremist i don't think that they were ever right and i think that that's why you had an abolitionist movement immediately from the basically the founding of the country from my understanding
4: so I mean with that I mean I'm glad that we can agree there but I'm wondering like when you say um, like things like defund the police or these other asks these other quote unquote I guess you would say extreme requests because um, I know you were talking a lot about how people would get shut down or not be able to um, I guess Feel like they can participate in a conversation about change feeling safe i guess if someone were to say it, say things that were unquote, harsh or extreme like defund the police etc etc so i kind of wanted to challenge you in thinking about some of the acts the asks for change being just as extreme as the policies that were that people are um kind of being oppressed by and I know this is more of a statement, but I don't, I just wonder what you think about what I'm no, saying. No, t- t-
2: totally. I, I, would, I would respond with a question to that statement. Who writes policy? Lawmakers. And which lawmakers get to write that policy?
4: Congress, Senate, all The,
2: the right. ones that win elections, right? Right. Okay. So my whole point is take – aside feelings about defunding the police which i disagree with we need a police force but i'm not here to disagree with you i'm here to say that to win elections and to write policy and to effectuate change at the federal or state level yes protests are vitally important it's necessary i wouldn't have been out there protesting if i didn't believe that it was doing some good so that's point one but point two is ultimately me the protester I'm not writing that law it's the people who win the elections and I believe that extremist rhetoric like defund the police where you have a ton of uh, polling showing how unpopular it is you have the leaders of the Democratic Party President Obama uh, congressman Clyburn and there's many many others Coming out and saying that it cost the Democrats in the House in 2020. I am, and this is an opinion. It's their opinion. I ascribe to their opinion. I ascribe to the polling. The one poll I saw, I think, said 73 people percent of people oppose it. It was like eight percent of people are, are support it. I'll, I'll get numbers for for you, and I will. Uh, let's see. I'll try and DM you if you have something linked i just clicked the the button um but my whole point is that winning elections is the goal and to, to be able to write the policy and change the extreme laws that we both agreed were really extreme and ultimately at the end of the day that phrase does not in my opinion and i could be wrong you could be right and that's why right we agree to disagree that phrase though does not help win elections
4: right and so i'm not so I have my own feelings about defunding the police as a concept, but I'm kind of coming at it from a place of, like, thinking about. I'm looking at it as a more more emotionally than because we're talking about love. I'm looking at it more emotionally versus more than. I mean, love is love. Love is political. Can be, um, but I'm looking at it where I'm thinking about how painful um, the experience that the people are having has to be where they're at this point, um, where they're requesting that they're this is the this is the ask. So I think what I'm saying is and just because I'm an artist and this is kind of like my job is to always kind of, you know, peek through and, and find other ways for us to see things differently. I'm I'm I know that we're talking about politics and voting and that is important. But when we hear when we hear things and we can politicize it sometimes it dampens the real message, which is about the pain and the hurt, and in term, I know, so I don't think we're disagreeing or anything because I haven't, I'm not someone who um, says I'm an advocate for um, defund the police. I think there's, there's ways that we can um, change what policing is, um, or maybe not have it, maybe it's not policing, maybe it's something different. Um, but just to make the point, I think um, when we're at this point where we're saying these things, it's more about, um, it's coming from a place of pain and frustration with a system that's consistently failed. Uh, and what it does in the polls or what it does in politics, it's, it's hard um, for at least me as a citizen to feel like they're thinking about my, my feelings, my experience. Um, when policies are made, um, yes, so I,
2: yes, that is, that is beautiful and wonderful. And I need to really, really make this clear. I am not saying that people should not say defund the police. I am not saying that anybody's feelings are justified or not. And it would be really, really egregious and atrocious, really bad. For me as a white man to tell people how they feel about police brutality so I, I need to like underline that I need to put an exclamation point there and I need to say that when I talk about defund the police I am talking about the implications it has electorally and as a result I'm talking about the implications that it has on actually effectuating legislative change from my limited perspective right And that being understood and that being said, what I can say is making legislation is an ugly, ugly process. We essentially have politics so we don't have war. And so that at the end of the day, might isn't always right. We have to sit down a bunch of different people from a bunch of different factions, get into a conference room usually, it's usually the staffers, who are underpaid, overworked, too young, and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed that are actually doing the hard work and writing the legislation. And to create a bill, it, it it really is a very interesting process. But I would argue, for the most part, even legislation that doesn't come out that great, there, there are a lot of different considerations going into it, but... I, <laughs> Having, listen, I was a Republican uh, for a very conservative member of Congress. And uh, now I'm a very, I'm a liberal Democrat. But I will tell you right now that when I was trying to write or influence legislation in my head and in my heart, I thought I was doing it for the better of the country. I now realize that those policies in a lot of instances That my boss was supporting which I disagreed with a lot of them at the time anyways but um, that that a lot of those policies uh, just weren't right so what I'm trying to express to you is people don't go into politics generally speaking to make money they go into politics because they truly want to make a difference whether Republicans or Democrats could they do a better job of expressing that yes and i am sincerely merlin i apologize if uh, my statements about defund the police made it feel like people aren't being heard in the legislative process i just personally disagree with defund the police i don't think it achieves the ultimate goal and i think it's bad policy so that being said i totally hear people when they say it i'll sit down and listen with an open mind Um, And just because I have a different opinion, I I really hope that just because lawmakers who are honest and kind and considerate, even if they're Republicans or Democrats and they have a different opinion than you, if they sit down and listen, I I hope that um, they are listening to you, hearing your concerns and not, um, you know, ignoring you and making you feel that way.
0: And I want to thank you, Merlin, for bringing this up. And I think we can have a whole other room on it and should. Um, because I think there's a lot of nuance and important things to discuss around the emotional as well as the po- political and how those things overlap. And um, Justin, just to, um, one thing that's been really helpful for me that I learned from my friend Richie Reseda, who's a, a brilliant activist and abolitionist, is we've had many campaigns for defunding education, for defunding healthcare, for defunding many other services, social services, and they may not use that language specifically, although some probably do. Um, But I think it's important to recognize that this is not a new concept. It's just being framed in a particular way, and I think there's actually an extremist interpretation, which is abolish the police, and some say that's right, and that may be the more extremist view, but the defund is really reallocate resources, And, and certainly semantics are in consideration, but Um, Just to speak on behalf of that, there's a lot of abolitionists who believe um, reallocation of resources is possible and this language goes to that. The other thing I wanted to just address and and you're kind of speaking about policy and who writes policy, there are a lot of kind of activists, leaders um, who run nonprofits who are writing incredible policy, especially especially in relation to this topic of criminal justice reform, as well as lobbyists. And so I just wanted to put that out there that we have influence over kind of Policy decisions that can be written into law based on relationships through NGOs and nonprofits and lobbyist organizations. Some very much rooted in kind of our capitalist economy. Others based in more movement-oriented work. Um, but beyond just getting into you know the staffer's office for a particular senator or, or you know uh, representative. I, I, it seems like there's more pathways to influence um, policy than that. And I, I just wanted to offer that. Is that. Would you agree with that?
2: I would agree with that totally. And we've had in my room uh, where I was the guest, a two or three hour conversation about the nature of lobbying and, and what that is. And, and lobbying can be nonprofits. It can be Ethan and Alex and Merlin and Royfield and Justin getting together and going to meet the politicians, right? It doesn't have to be the legal definition of lobbying, but there are tons of ways to influence policy. I think that activists, hey, just because I don't 100% agree with this specific issue, doesn't mean that I don't see the value of activists doesn't mean that activists aren't vitally important to everything doesn't mean that uh, not only uh, the NGOs that you mentioned, uh, are aren't necessarily influencing policy, it also doesn't mean that some policy wouldn't get written at all if there weren't the activists energizing the people to go out into the streets and protest, that everything is interconnected, right? And I think that it's very, very important. So when I talk about a conference room of staffers and we can get into the structure, we didn't even get into the structural inequalities of how to become a staffer on Capitol Hill, which I've held rooms at. Uh, it's predominantly male, it's predominantly white, and there are a lot of, it's predominantly wealthy and there are a lot of reasons for that. So th- that's a whole nother issue that, that we can get into uh, and that I wish more people paid more attention to. Um, but yes, I-, I agree, Ethan. And I was just saying the people that literally put the pen to paper are typically committee staff borrowed away in a conference room over a weekend with a Monday deadline approaching. And the considerations tend to be realpolitik between uh, maybe the Senate in the House or whatever have you. But yes, you are right. Uh, there are many, many ways to influence policy. And I suggest everybody, whether you support, abolish the police, whether you support any policy, get involved. I don't have to agree with it. That's what a better America is, right? That's what separates America from, for example, uh, the regime in Ru- the the mafia state in Russia, or the CCP government in China, or what you see in Venezuela or North Korea or Iran, you can say that I believe in abolish the police, this is what I want, and then you can go get involved. It doesn't have to be money, it can be going and knocking doors for a candidate. Um, but I think that getting involved in sitting down and asking a question like Merlin did is a sense of civic responsibility and duty, but also to kind of bring this back to the point, uh, a display of love.
0: Absolutely. And I just want to give shout out to my friend Taina uh, Edmund Vargas, who is an unbelievable policy writer who brings bills to the California State House often with Initiate Justice uh, in service to prison reform and supporting families who are um, dealing with incarceration so it, it's done and then on the far right side we have groups like alec who um, are very fluent in writing bills and getting them right onto senator's desk to rubber stamp uh, without many influence from uh, staffers or others so i i think there's ex- ah, <laughs> there's examples I, of all that maybe, maybe i'm wrong there I, I'm,
2: gonna, I, I'm gonna respectfully I, I think that it gets um the outside influence on policy gets overblown is what okay. i'll say
0: okay Cool. Well, I appreciate that. Let's make some space for Royfield to jump in. What, what do you got on your mind, Royfield? Welcome.
2: Um, <coughs> listen,
1: um, Ethan, uh, thank you uh, for this room. Um, first time here and first time on your stage. Really enjoyed it. I love the concept of, of love in terms of, of politics and uh, being a Brit in your country. Um, it's very obvious that America is atypical in the liberal advanced uh, economies in that there is very much an overt sense of na- love for the flag and love for American institutions, which isn't the same, it, it, it's, it's nuancedly different in let's say Britain, France, Italy, Germany. Maybe France is the closest you get to this overt sense of America and, and love. Uh, and so to hear Justin talk about his love of America, Um, first off, when when you go on stage, uh, you know, it was interesting, again, from a European perspective, we wouldn't frame, um, uh, you know, things in that way. Um, But one thing which I definitely did chime with, Justin, was you talked about speaking to individual Americans and them accepting you in terms of whether you're left or right. And that is definitely something which I think is absolutely true. Considering how riven this country is at the moment by partisan politics, if you speak to an American and you don't dress up your conversation in terms of a polemic, whether it's left or right, Democrat or Republican, actually, you nearly always come to some, some level of agreement and unanimity. And, and I would say that is the, it, the converse of my home country, uh, the UK. Not that people are at all as vitriolic in terms of our politics, but... Um, somebody will say, "I'm a conservative. I'm a Labour supporter," and they view very much uh, the world kind of from that view. But what I wanted to come on to say is is really this this notion of of, of love, which ultimately is empathy, some level of understanding of others. How can we, how can we, um, get? And I will point the finger at more at right wing media than left and I'm pointing finger at One America, Fox, etc. how can we get them to display more empathy for Americans who don't subscribe to their view that just working hard is the solution to all of America's ills? That just for, let's say, a, a family who just happened to be poor, let's forget the structural reasons why they are, or just happen to be some kind of other So just saying to them, work harder, isn't necessarily the the solution. How can we get um, that type of media to have a more empathetic approach, a more loving approach, as opposed to one which is intolerant and simplistic, and is just coming out with the same old solutions for hard-ridden social problems. How can we show love and empathy
2: that way through our media? Roy Field. uh you're a gentleman and a scholar as always and that is a difficult question but uh to kind of compare it to uh, defund the police right there is no comparison between that rhetoric which i would argue and condemn and i've just done and the sheer intolerance and if you go and i'll go further if you go and you listen to some of those shows on oan one american news network oann fox news tucker carlson he's an outright racist it's beyond intolerance it's hatred it's I, I could just go on and on and on so the short answer is you can't they're making money off of this they have no incentive to change they clearly don't give a shit. If they did, they wouldn't have it got this bad with Hannity and Tucker Carlson. And I lump in another group with the media that you just mentioned. I lump in Facebook. And if you look at Facebook with the algorithms they have and the type of information, both on the left and the right, that gets amplified and shared and gets the millions of likes. It's the most extreme content because that's the way the algorithms work. And it creates this really corrosive environment so we can't change that but fear not Roy Field I'm not all negative there is a way that we can begin to heal our ecosystem so sure legislation to um, le- legislation to maybe uh, break up big tech or what the EU is doing which is forcing um, Google Twitter and Facebook to change their algorithms and then it's gonna force them To open up their algorithms to show the regulators that they've actually changed their algorithms would be two huge massive steps forward. But the other way to do it is you need more people doing shows like this, like Ethan and I disagree about the issue um, of abolish the police. I don't care, whatever, that's fine. We we agree that love is important. We agree that the end goal needs to be uh, reforming the police and doing so in a way that prevents brutalization of black people and specifically black men. We agree on much more than we disagree. So my point is through using <laughs> through using and creating platforms like clubhouse. And I'm sure that as we move forward, there's going to be more and new tech where you can have a room like this, or you can have a room like my room where I get Trump supporters tweeting out All of the links to the upcoming events that I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a bunch of Trump people on, and I get liberals tweeting out and and supporting all the links that I'm gonna have because I'm gonna have a lot of media members and I'm gonna have a lot of um, liberal politicians on as well and what you do is you get them in the same room and you give them just the information as unbiased as humanly possible we all have bias so nothing's gonna be perfect And you pierce their information bubble and you do so in a civil way maybe you're going to get some conservatives listening to a democrat who's not giving talking points off but is actually speaking to the individual american maybe you're going to get a conservative or a trump person that you say wow they were very thoughtful or i agree with them on x y and z i never thought this i just painted the whole administration as a A, b and c um so to really put a fine point on it i don't think we can change Fox News for the better I think that we can change those social media organizations through strong and strict regulation ideally breaking up big tech and then regulating Um, and then furthermore I think that we can create a new media ecosystem through new technology like Clubhouse where you have people with opposing views come together to have information uh, and they're listening to that information together, and it's um, creating, it's it's removing that um, information bubble and in that bubble of, of of the ecosystem where people are just separated out. And I think that that's how we begin to restore a, a shared values and love.
1: I think um, you you're, you're talking about if if this is all just down to money, um, in terms of let's say right wing media. Um, yes, we. And it's hard to disagree with that in large part. But one of the s- solutions is that um, corporations can then withdraw, can't they? And, and, and they have been doing this uh, periodically. Uh have been withdrawing sponsorship of shows, advertising on shows, etc. Which, at some point, has got to add up to um, your Fox News is realising that their bottom line is not served by this level of... Um, uh, vitriolic attack on at least half if not two-thirds i would say of actually of, of all americans that this is this is one area where corporate america can actually wield quite a, a heavy hammer in terms of affecting the discourse which goes on in, in the states but apart just but just but just very, very quickly last question to you sir um you mentioned Judge and Biden as being two politicians who've displayed love because of the way that they speak. And I always talk about the messy middle, and the messy middle is where we all should really aim to be, so we can look left and we can look right, we can look up and we can look down, and we can have some level of empathy and understanding uh, of other people that come at a debate from a, a different point of view. So you mentioned two democratic politicians are there any Republicans who you think, hmm, they are displaying a level of love, empathy, understanding uh, for, for all Americans?
2: Could <laughs> you see how hard it was for me to get two Democrats? Um, no, I, I'm joking around. Uh, there are there are a lot of Democrats. I think Chris Coons, I think um, uh, Ron Wyden, and I, and I could name off more and more and more. Uh, so Chris Coons from Delaware, Ron Wyden uh, from uh ron wyden from uh, oregon Uh, i think jim Clyburn, i think obviously president obama um (laughs) you're going to really put me on the spot here uh of course i think there are republicans um who uh represent this I, i i would say and now i would say that i completely Disagree with Paul these policies. Just in,
1: uh, let, let me help you out a little. Dare I say, it, Mitt Romney has shown us certain... Yes, I was going to Mitt Romney. <laughs> exactly. <All right. laughs> I
2: was just winding up and prefacing. Yes, Mitt Romney and I and 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 that's um, if anybody wants to see love. Love doesn't mean accepting extremism. Um, love, in my opinion, actually means stomping out extremism in, in a lot of different instances. And not only does Mitt Romney, I think, have. Uh, Mitt Romney created the template for Obamacare. M- many people don't realize that he was governor of Massachusetts. He passed a law, which was called Romney Care, uh, ironically, and that was the state level, uh, basically a foundation that was extrapolated out for Obamacare. Um, so Mitt Romney is not Mitt Romney like everybody thinks he is. I think he's he's uh, he is the example. And specifically, go Google Mitt Romney, Josh Hawley, January sixth. And you will see Mitt Romney, if, if looks could kill, Josh Hawley is an insurrectionist, loving, I think the worst example of America. He is a elite, educated, former Supreme Law Court, uh, court Supreme Law Kirk, clerk. He represents the worst, in my opinion, in America. The Republicans that funded him and gave him millions of dollars to run and win in Missouri have come out strongly condemning him. And why do I say he's the worst? Because he runs on this populist platform while knowing it's not the right thing to do. And he runs that way because he's so elite and so educated that he has to appeal to people's lowest common denominator so that he doesn't get painted as that elite. Um, But anyways, Mitt Romney feels the same way I do. Google Mitt Romney, Josh Hawley, January 6th. He wants to just smack Josh Hawley. uh, And I think that's another form of love.
1: He also went on Black Lives Matters marches Mitt Romney and, uh, and kept it quiet as well. He didn't make a big uh, song and dance about it, but listen, Justin, um, uh, thank you for uh, being on stage today. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for allowing me to uh, uh, put a little bit of British sensibility into your American state. <laughs> take care.
0: We Bye. welcome it. Thank you Roy Field. Uh Yeah, I, I, I recognize we're, we're over time and I, I want to wrap for this. Conversation, but Justin, I think there's a lot more we can go into, and there's clearly more interest from the from the audience too. So, I'd love to do more of this uh, with you, and I think just the the nuance and the various aspects with which we can talk about politics in different frames um, is uh, there's a lot there's a lot to get into. Um, but I really appreciate you coming into the Love Extremist Club and joining me. Can you just let everyone know where they can best find you? Obviously, follow Justin on Clubhouse and everyone else on stage, but where can folks stay up on what you're up to?
2: I think my club would probably be the best place. We host events in 42 minutes, 8 8 p.m. Eastern every Monday through Friday. And, Ethan, uh, yes, we definitely have to do more uh, events together. I'd maybe put you on the hot seat. But this club is focused on literally trying to create empathy and sympathy and love for people whose policies you may abhor and people who have different points of view. Um, and that's, this is what I wanna leave the audience with, not to come and, and follow me. But at the end of the day, there, there are limits to what I'm about to say. But if somebody isn't trying to uh, overtly oppress you or hurt you or aggress upon you, and they just have different policy views than you, and maybe they're a republican or maybe they're a democrat before you start to think of them in the most negative light possible remember that for the most part there are extremists that this does not apply to but that's not the vast majority of americans like royfield just said for the most part everybody's a human being and an american that is trying to advance Principal point of what makes America great in my eyes and that's to become a more perfect union so understand that we're all working from a shared sense of purpose and sit down at the table talk to them and more importantly listen to them and you'll be stunned that we agree on much more than you would think we do
0: mm, I love that and I, I as a love extremist I, I believe that so wholeheartedly that we are all here and able to, and maybe our most greatest gift is to love and to be able to share that with each other and recognize our common humanity. One of the things that really drew me to having this conversation with you was you holding space for a conversation between leaders and uh, citizens in Palestine and Israel and ending that conversation on a note of love and being able to hold that space for people coming from vastly different perspectives and it be civil and respectful and dignified. and. I just the examples that show up here in Clubhouse for these types of conversations are so powerful and, you know, I've seen it in Justin's club and it happens here often in the love extremist community and many other spaces. So just grateful for this platform and this opportunity for us to engage and walk away with respect and appreciation and even dare I say love uh, as we carry on into our days and think about these challenging topics so. Thank you all. This was wonderful. Uh, We'll likely publish it on Love Extremist Radio. So if you like podcasting, go subscribe to us there. And um, Justin, you're the best. I'm excited for round two. And thank you all who came up on stage. Have a beautiful rest of your day, morning, evening, week, wherever you may be. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Ethan. Keep up the good work.
0: Thanks so much, Justin. You too. Peace. Thanks for listening to Love Extremist Radio. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. If you want to learn more about being a love extremist, check out www.extremist.love and follow Love Extremist on Instagram and Facebook. Find me also on Instagram at Ethan Lipsitz. Hope to hear from you soon. Peace.